Welcome to Stories of COVID, the interview project that explores what it's like to experience a global pandemic. I never thought I would see this in my lifetime. It is scary and it's very real, but it's not hopeless. As I said, I changed three planes. None of them were wearing any gloves or masks. I've never seen so much support for freelancers or artists in the in the media um, as I have now. They both laid me off from just the advent of the, the outbreak. I'm anthropologist and author Veronica Kieran, and I am building an interview archive of stories and anecdotes that define this time in history to write a book preserving this experience for future generations. If you'd like to help preserve this moment in history for future generations, check out the show notes to sign up for an interview. Carlos Estrada is a graphic designer. In this episode, he describes that the pandemic was actually the second wave of economic difficulty for freelancers and contractors. The first wave was the trade war with China. He then describes that because of the pandemic and because of online gatherings, for the first time, his network has expanded globally and that new connections, new ideas are being forged because of the pandemic. When I first heard about it, gosh, probably on the news. So I would say like at home on the news, I want to say maybe like in, wouldn't it be February when it was like, I think they were talking about it. Oh, no way. Okay. If I really think about it, it was in the news, like towards the end of beginning of the year and they're talking about China. So I heard about it, but I didn't think much of it. To be honest, I thought it's, I'm like, that's awful. And it's something like Ebola, something that happens in another continent, but rarely ever gets to ours. Mm, it's still it's still kind of unreal because I see a lot of West Michigan. I've always I've always driven, I've always traveled. I'll take accounts anywhere and drive there because I love driving and so I do a lot of work in Holland, Grand Rapids, like I always have, but also past three years I've really invested in making connections in Detroit so I've spent a lot of time in Detroit and seeing the differences in our state before COVID has been mind-blowing just the lines of economic divide and really just the lines of racism are so vivid and really it's it's systematic racism and like it took me like I heard that term since 2014, but it took me a few years to really understand what that meant. And now it's like in the news all the time being politicized. And I'm thinking, man, if it took me years to really gain an understanding of what that meant in 2014, and now people are hearing it for the first time on TV, I'm like, how insane people are not going to get it, the general public, if no one's like, you know, because most people don't have time, they're surviving. To see how people respond in Michigan is what I'm trying to get at. I feel like I'm living in different worlds and different societies, neighborhood by neighborhood, city by city. And the reason I brought up the racial divide is I've seen in the communities of color and especially in Detroit, 
people living a lot safer than the suburbs. And obviously in Detroit, one of the most affected cities in our nation and our state, definitely. And especially with, with Black and Latinos being affected the most, it makes sense. But then I'm thinking, this is global. And when I go to a lot of suburbs and very wealthy neighborhoods on both sides of the state, it's just so carefree. Like people are living in a different world. And that's just my experience. Cause I know it's not everyone, you know, people do care. People are being cautious, but I think when they see that it doesn't affect their community out of sight, out of mind, cause I feel like that is kind of how the whole state treats the East side is out of sight, out of mind. And I'm thinking it's just, it's very unfortunate to say the least. So it's still unreal to me how people respond and, and how that bounces off me. Like, I'm still, you know, wearing a mask. There, there's things that I don't believe either because I don't see it. Like, I know I see people getting sick, but, you know, thankfully, thankfully I'm healthy. I have friends that have lost loved ones. And so, you know, you're there for them. You listen to them you know, while they hurt. And then I have friends and family on the flip side that don't get it or understand it and complain about wearing a mask um, because they haven't seen anyone sick. And I'm like, are you watching the news? <laughs> I understand people that don't see it as being real, but it is. So we, we need to be more I don't know, how would you say it? Proactive with our thoughts and actions? Like more open? Politics has really played a role, unfortunately, because I've, I've had some large corporate clients for a few years now. And what's interesting is, I think it was 2018 when Trump was dealing with, with China and I think he was, you know, saying that he was going to stop all trade. We're going to put this ban on it, that on them. Was it, I meant, maybe I meant 2019. So whenever he did that within the past year and a half or maybe two years, I saw it have, like, everybody, a lot of people were saying, well, that's not going to affect us. But the CEOs were paying attention and it was affecting us. Because I saw a lot of jobs starting to get put on hold. Um, a lot of uh, contractors and freelancers lose their work or work slowed down. And I've always, I've run my own design practice for 10 years and I've done a lot of the corporate clients I have look at me as a contractor. So I do contract with them and I immediately saw a change and it didn't affect me immediately, but I could see my work slowing down. I'm like, oh my gosh, he hasn't even did anything yet. It's just him talking and I can see upper management making changes, like just in case. And so that was happening. And after that happened, then COVID started to, you know, hit the news cycle. It's in China. Now it's in Italy. Now, now it's in America. And then in March, when everything just got dismantled and everyone was told to stay home, um, thankfully, I finish the major projects with some of my larger clients um, like I just finished and 
budgets were approved, but nothing was allowed to go forward. And then um, one of my smaller clients who survives on advertising, so if the advertisers pulled out. So when they pulled out, <laughs> I lost four jobs in one day, one afternoon. And I knew it was coming. When I was watching the news, I'm like, oh, so-and-so is going to call me. And they don't have to say anything because I know exactly what they're going to say. And so-and-so did call me. And I'm like, you don't have to tell me. I completely understand. I said, don't tell me. And then they told me. I'm like, I told you not to tell me. <laughs> so, And then I even had some side gigs. Um, everything just got put on hold. So, you know, honestly, it affected me in a major way. Oh, I think it's been life-changing. I have strong opinions about that. I think it's accelerated where we were going to end up anyway. So I, I feel like virtual and digital were already working. They were already happening. It was going to become dominant, but this totally accelerated it. And I think, um, I think from now on, um, even when, when, when things change for the better, when, when they're, you know, when the, the curve is flattened and things are uh, a little back to normal. And I know everyone's saying that in such a different way, but regardless, what I'm trying to say is as we move on in this decade, I honestly believe that if you're smart, Whatever type of organization, business or corporation or nonprofit or ministry that you have, if you're smart, you will always be streaming. I, I think that there will always be a hybrid. And if there isn't, then you're no longer relevant. And I say that with deep commitment to that belief that uh, a hybrid of live events and streaming are the future. And I say that because with, with all the programming that I've done in AIJ Detroit, we've, what we realized and what we saw this year with COVID hitting, one of our board members um, created a series of Zoom lunches. The people involved went all out. So like we were having four Zoom lunches a week for months, on, like continually. So like every week you could depend on having three or four Zoom lunches with different designers from around the world and around the nation. And in doing that, besides keeping momentum and things moving forward, we received a, a really good response from people of, with disabilities. And they said, they, they thanked our chapter and they said, if you didn't do that, we would have, they said, even if, if COVID wasn't here, we would have never been able to attend that. But because you, you did it online, that was so refreshing. And I think as we move on to be a more inclusive culture and society, it just realized that, you know, streaming things, it, it helps people participate and engage. And some of those people you want engaging with you. And that, that creates better business, better profit. It creates uh, future partnerships and it just strengthens the community of wherever you're at. Uh, because when you talk about disabilities, everyone will be most likely will be disabled in their life at one time or another. Because sometimes it's just temporary. You know, you're in an accident, 
a sports injury or <laughs> you trip on Legos, you're going to be, you know, something might be strained for a few weeks, you know, or a few months. And you're going to live life differently. And I think in this digital age, because we have the capability, I think as we move forward to be smart, there should always be a hybrid of, of streaming or, or, or digital meetings in whatever we do in real life. Just because you can, it's easier to sometimes close caption, have uh, interpreters, not just for the deaf and hard of hearing, but different languages. Um, Spanish. Uh, most of Michigan wants to deny this, but we have the largest um, Arabic community in the nation. So if we need to translate something into Arabic and all the other languages of our country, <laughs> which makes me, I'm going to quick go jump on my, one of my soapboxes and rabbit trip and just say on the record that the United States of America is the largest Spanish speaking country in the world. So um, once we come out of denial and and for those who don't want to admit that, you know, there's a need for closed captioning and interpretation um, and translation. And digital is one of the best ways to do it. And then the other reason the other reason I, I, I feel strongly about this is education. It's a hot mess right now. Right now, Zoom seems to be the answer, and so all its competitors, you know, take a strong, a stronger foothold. But um, what's on the horizon? What no one's talking about because they probably can't handle it yet. Again, this is this is really going to show the economic divide and classism that we have in our our country. But next to Zoom, right after that, we've got augmented reality and vir um, virtual reality. Like put on those 3D glasses and you'll be in your classroom. Or put that little projector on so you can answer the questions, you know, in the air. So we have these capabilities. It's just the when will they be, you know, distributed to the masses and who's gonna be able to afford it first. But I really feel like that that is the future. Like we can already do it now and everyone's working on it to do it better. Well, about two weeks ago, I found out that a friend's mother passed away and she lived in Texas and he wasn't allowed to go to Texas for her funeral. And they, the family there wasn't allowed to have a funeral. I can't imagine that. We, we hear these stories, they're on the news, so we have that millisecond of empathy and then we'll move on. And then if we know someone that happens to, I think our empathy and compassion d depends on our friendship and will last longer. But I was thinking about that this week because I have a family member who's been fighting stage four cancer for a few years now. And it's been really grim all year. And I'm thinking, I don't want this to be the year where the, where the, where the fight is over. And I, I personally don't believe that. But I'm thinking, this is not a good thought. <laughs> I don't want my family to know I thought this way. But I'm like, if something were to happen to him, well, really not, not something. If he were to pass this year, 
I was thinking about my aunt and my uncle. I'm like, to have someone's estate come in or the city or the county or even one of their religious mentors or a priest or a pastor or funeral director or all the people that are involved to have someone come in and say, oh, you can't do a memorial service. You can't invite his loved ones. You can't gather to heal from your pain or to celebrate his name. To me, that is devastating. I mean, just culturally, you know, families are not, you know, and that it could be a generalization, but culturally, most of us are, are family oriented. That's our core. And it's like an attack at the core of how we were raised to, to, to live with one another, even if you're in a different state, like this priorities and so on. And, um, and I know that's, it's, it's something that I've never would have thought I would have to think about. Like, how are we going to do this? If, if this is the year he passes, what laws or what, what, what new things are we going to have to fight or compromise or negotiate? So it's really at looking at, you know, death is part of life. So looking at death in a different way. And, and how do we do that with dignity and with respect? Because we, until it happens to you, you don't think about it. And, and it hasn't happened to me this year, thankfully, thus far. But I'm like, how do we prepare for it? Because I can see what's going on in the family now, just the waves of emotion and the struggle and the fight. I'll leave it at that. I think that's, that's where that story will be. It's like every month, all the rules are always changing and state to state. And I, um, it's, it's a few months ago, a pastor, a former pastor of mine passed away. And thankfully, as long as the numbers, like it could, it could only be a certain number, but there was, I don't know, like maybe 50. He had an outside memorial service. And because it was outside and because people were wearing masks and it wasn't a large amount, they were allowed to have it. And then they had, and thankfully it's the summer, so the weather was nice. And then there was like some type of, I don't know the proper name for it, but when after the funeral, when you like go eat, there was a community center that had an outside like banquet patio. So everybody was allowed to, um, to, to eat outside because the tables, the picnic tables were far enough. You could social distance, you could be outside and you can eat. So thankfully that could, you know, that was, um, an option and, and we had it that way. I just know that, uh, unfortunately for my friend, you know, they weren't allowed. Um, his where his mom lived, the city would not allow anything to be done. So, it just you know, from region to region, you know, like I said, it, it's we have to look at, you know, how do we, you know, look how do we live with death or look at death differently with dignity and respect um, for people and for cultures? Because you know, I'm actually just looking at this from like a Christian point of view. I don't know what other religions expect when someone dies. I don't know what, what traditions or songs or days of mourning or celebration is supposed to happen. 
So this even affects people and their, their faith, their belief system. It's interesting and it's not over. Thank you for listening. Subscribe so that you don't miss an interview. I interview multiple people a week and I am releasing these episodes as fast as I can. And if the story meant something to you, share it because it will probably mean something to someone else. Every time you share the project, it helps the project grow. So thank you. Until next time, stay safe, stay well.